Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, this is a busy week for North Africa watchers, with Tunisian President Assebsi's visit to Washington. As many of you know, the conflict in Libya is very much on the minds of Tunisians, among others, policymakers who feel their country's security situation is vulnerable to the power vacuum next door. So we are very happy to have the opportunity to hear from two prominent experts about the current state of affairs in Libya and the perspective of our partners across the Atlantic. As many of you already know, one year ago this month, General Khalifa Haftar launched Operation Dignity to rid Benghazi of extremists. The offense has devolved into what is arguably a stalemated civil war between what have been broadly categorized as non-Islamist versus Islamist, Tobruk versus Tripoli. As we all know by now, the reality is far, far, far from simple. As, uh, as at the core of, of, of this struggle is a struggle for political power and control over key resources. Recognizing this, UN Special Representative Bernardino Leon has been shutting between various capitals and camps, trying to facilitate the dialogue. Despite fractures within the two major camps, the negotiation efforts have not produced an agreement. Fighting continues. Ordinary citizens continue to be without public services. And the devastating loss of life in the Mediterranean off of Libya's shore is galvanizing a European response. To help us understand the nuances of what is going on today, we have with us Mattia Toaldo, a Libya expert and Middle East Program Fellow with the European Council of Foreign Relations, and Abdurrahman Adajeli, co-founder of an NGO that aims to empower youth, former security advisor to the office of the Libyan Prime Minister, and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. You have the, 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 their bios at your seats, so it is in, in the interest of time, I will pass it on to our speakers to make a few minutes of opening remarks before opening it for Q&A. What I'll do, that each one of them will have 10 minutes, and then I will open the floor for, for, for your question and, and, and give you as much time as we have until 1.30, 1.40. All right, so I think, uh, Abdurrahman, if you want to begin. Sure, thank you very much, Karim. Um, I'll be as brief as possible, but I'll try and cover as much information as I can in a short space of time. Um, so there's going to be a lot of condensation happening. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing I'll speak about is some of the recent developments um, and put that in the context of key differences between the different regions of Libya. Um, the key, as we all know, there are diff different social uh, and military dynamics in the, between the east, south and west, and that's important to bear in mind when thinking of solutions and analyzing the problems. So the, the main thing on everyone's minds at the moment is the, uh, the potential results of the negotiations that are happening in Morocco, the UN-led negotiations. Um, a lot of people are, um, are critical of the draft that was released for various reasons. Um, the negotiations are an absolutely necessary part, as is the formation of a unity government in order to solve the political dispute. The various sides criticize it for different reasons. There are criticisms of the draft in the east of Libya, in the, in the HOR um, and in Baida, um, because some people there believe that a decisive military victory would be much more fruitful. Um, than waiting for the negotiation process to end and then selecting a cabinet and a, and, a, and a transitional government. And then in the west of Libya, the guys in Tripoli um, and in the Libya Dawn and Qaswar and Shuruq alliances are slightly critical of it because they see it as a bias towards the HOR. Um, the conflict in the west of Libya 
Um, it seems that the, the amount of financial and logistical support that is to the front lines um, in Libya Dawn and in Qaswara has been reduced. The, the will to continue uh, in combat is also uh, becoming less, and this is manifesting itself in various local negotiations and local ceasefires. You've seen some prisoner exchanges between Zintan and uh, Masrata. You've seen some changes in the dynamics in Zawiya. Um, which is basically taking into recognition the fact that the conflict between Zawiya and Wushafana is a conflict that is historical in its nature and it's between uh, various families that have had problems with each other over land issues and over other issues. Um, and it's been slightly mediated with the help of a brigade from Masrata, which some were surprised about. You also saw the lifting of the tribal and social protection of some of the forces from Zawiya that are fighting in Libya Dawn, which is a significant step. You have um, uh, a Masrata press release today as well, a declaration uh, criticizing the political isolation law, um, uh, putting forward the fact, the, the proposal that Masrata would be a place where negotiations could take place, um, proposing the idea of uniting against terrorists, uh, the fact that former Gaddafi loyalists need to be integrated, etc. Um, what this shows, <clears throat> although I'm slightly more pessimistic about a possible solution happening um, in the east of Libya so easily, um, is also the interesting fact that many of the participants in the dialogue and the politicians on both sides, whether it's the GNC on one side or the HOR on the other side, um, have little or nothing to do with some of these local ceasefires that are taking place in the local negotiations. And the people that are negotiating with each other are the warring actors themselves and the people concerned in those areas, which is you know, the social structures that people have created to represent their interests, whether they're armed groups or tribes or families, depending on what region you're talking about. And the way I see how the negotiation process should be happening is, rationally speaking and logically speaking, it should be local ceasefires and negotiations and bringing forward the warring actors themselves to talk to each other and then negotiations leading to a unity government and then a truth and reconciliation process and then a vision for the new Libya and what it should look like rather than negotiations for unity government and then hoping that the unity government is going to solve all of the security problems in Libya, as well as um, you know, gaining monopoly on the use of force, demobilizing and disarming all of the armed groups mm -hmm. within 90 days, expelling them from the cities within 60 days, without clearly specifying who will be responsible for protecting uh, critical infrastructure and, uh, and government and civilians. Um, experts on the issue are also taking into account the, the economic situation um, the fact that we could be heading towards a rapid economic collapse, um, the lack of our ability to, to export the full potential of, uh, um, of uh, our natural resources, um, the fact that we're in a deficit which could lead to up to a 68% uh, deficit uh, in terms of GDP. Um, interestingly though, there are negotiations taking place between the technocrats from the central bank in Tripoli and central bank uh, in, in the east of Libya that's under the HOR. The technocrats are talking to each other and they're trying to devise uh, a budget that they both agree on for the unity government to put into play along with some substantial and dramatic um, efforts and policies to reduce the, uh, the deficit. 
Obviously, you have the, I, uh, the Islamic State issue and the Ansar al-Sharia issue, which is developing. As time goes on, the organization is evolving according to the response. Um, the, the number of people in Libya who have a direct link to uh, Raqqa Mosul and IS headquarters is a very small number. The financial and logistical support to these organizations from the region is minimal at the moment, but it is evolving to the type of IS that nobody wants to see. I would say that at the moment, the majority of the people that are fighting for these organizations have local grievances and local ambitions rather than the regional ambitions of uh, of the uh, the headquarters, there are significant defections happening on a day-to-day -day basis from some of the other Tekfiri organizations to IS. There are some tribal alliances of convenience with them as well, uh, largely as similar to Iraq um, as a response to uh, exclusion and marginalization in terms of Gaddafi loyalist tribes and also a fear of exclusion on behalf of some of the Islamists or so some senior Islamists. Um, fear that if there's a unity government that's going to be totalitarian in its nature, they're going to follow the example of Egypt, that uh, they're going to be subject to counter-terrorism laws and they're going to be tortured and imprisoned and everything else. And some of the, the, the other uh, Islamists fear that they will be excluded from political and economic empowerment. You have changing regional dynamics, and uh, Matthias is going to talk about it more, but you have the EU uh, uh, migration plan or the so-called bomb the boats plan. Um, which I'm not going to say anything about for now. Um, but I would say in terms of the, the regional proxy dynamics, um, there is a significant opportunity uh, presented after the change of uh, politics in Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, there was uh, a, a various delegations going to the UAE last week. I think it's clear that Qatar is coming closer to Saudi in terms of their, their policy towards some of the proxies. and. Um, Qatar and Turkey and Sudan are coming less and less kind of uh, involved in directly militarily supporting either side, although the information on that is quite precarious. Um, uh, obviously, from their point of view, their objective, their main priority in the region is Yemen, so the, the, uh, the operations and the politics regarding who's involved in Yemen is uh, slightly dictating how much influence they have over some of the actors. From the Western point of view, um, I think Saudi could be a mediator as long as they can still pick up the phone to Abu Dhabi and Cairo and hold some kind of sway. I think it would be a productive exercise to spend as much time on the phone to Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and Cairo as time uh, speaking to some of the Libyan counterparts, which I would say um, have been successful in manipulating um, the, the resources of some of these uh, regional actors uh, to combat their political opponents inside Libya. Um, and some would argue what would be the connection to the Libyan national interest um, in doing so. Um, the polarization within Libya is increasing. The polarization within the region is, is clear, although, as I said, there are significant opportunities. Um, the threats to the neighboring countries are clear. Egypt has very um, clear and distinct uh, national security threats from uh, Libyan instability. and. Um, if there is a void and if there is a gap that is not filled by the Libyan government and their ability to uh, quell these concerns, then um, some of the regional actors will take it upon themselves to, to uh, solve the problems and protect their national security, which is completely understandable. Um, and this will be connected to the EU plan if they, if they, if, because the, the operational details aren't released yet, but um, 
who the Libyan focal points on the ground will be from an operational point of view will probably be one of the most important things. Um, and at that, uh, I guess we can go into more detail in the Q&A session, and I'll leave it to Karim and Matia. Thank you very much, Abdul. You indeed covered a lot of ground. Matia? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Karim, Lara, and the Atlantic Council for inviting me. Uh, as a London-based Italian, I'm trying to cope with the third consecutive day of sunshine, which is something I haven't seen in London in decades. Uh, I'm sorry if my talk will, will sound like I'm trying to burst a bubble of optimism around the, the talks. And I'm hearing a lot of optimism, a lot of thinking on the day after the agreement. Well, the, the bad news is I think we have a lot of time to, to plan that. Uh, because I don't think we're near uh, an agreement. And it's not because Bernardino Leon is not an effective co uh, negotiator. I think the problem is uh, it's very difficult for him to square the circle between a, a power-sharing agreement and a regional context where the prevailing narrative to solve Libya, to solve Syria, to solve Yemen is the zero-sum game. And this has been the problem that Bernardino has been trying to solve to balance the, the power sharing idea with the idea that there was one uh, legitimate actor uh, and that uh, the, the borders of dialogue were very much uh, constrained to the point where it looked uh, very much like, uh, like a monologue. On the other hand, uh, and this I think is the silver lining, but unfortunately we're not there yet, uh, we have a war in Yemen uh, for the first time in many years, it's a war that has been decided mostly in Arab capitals, mostly in one Arab capital. And contrary to Syria, uh, I don't think the, 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 the Arab capitals can really blame the West for not having uh, given enough support in this effort. But unfortunately uh, for them, it's not turning out as expected. It's dragging longer than they were expecting. And there will be a point in which the kind of help they will ask to the West, it's different from the one they're requesting now. It will be an effort in trying to, to broker an agreement. And I think at that point, the West should be ready to, to exchange that help with some efforts in the stabilization of Libya. Because I do think, uh, as Abdurrahman was saying, that it's worth spending a lot of time on the phone with Riyadh so that Riyadh spends time on the phone with other Arab capitals. And this, in turn, uh, de-escalates uh, the conflict in Libya. Unfortunately, as I was saying, uh, we're not there yet in terms of regional awareness. There is still the, the thinking that this can be solved militarily. Uh, there was a Libyan uh, member of, uh, of parliament that recently said, we're doing Leon a favor because uh, we think the priority is the military solution. Uh, and we are in this paradoxical situation in which the concerned parties are doing us a favor in participating in negotiations about uh, their country. And the sense of urgency we feel, I'm, I'm afraid, is not felt uh, by the local actors, especially the sense of urgency on the, on the economic situation. So the question is, if Plan A negotiations is not going to be accomplished by the beginning of Ramadan, and that's, that's the goal, what do we do in the meantime? How do we avoid a further escalation? Bear in mind that last year's Ramadan was the time of the big escalation of the fighting uh, in Libya. I think the crucial factor is to devise a plan B that does not undermine the prospects of a plan A. My impression is that for many Libyan actors, uh, there was this awareness that if plan A failed, if negotiations failed or just stalled, then the plan B would be the West supporting them in order to fight IS and migrations and so on. 
And of course, this was not a big incentive in uh, doing real negotiations. Because as long as you know that the fallback option is that you won't have to share power, then what's the point of sharing power uh, with others? So the point is, I think, that while we wait for negotiations to, to succeed, we have to build incentives for those negotiations to, to succeed, and we have to build the mechanisms that helps us deal with the pressing issues, but not undermine uh, the plan A. And I will be uh, more specific by touching on a number of issues. For Europeans especially, the big urgency today uh, about Libya is the migration flow. Uh, the connection with the Libyan civil war is usually uh, underestimated by most European observers, but if you look at the curve of migrants coming to Europe from Libya, it goes up and up and up, starting from uh, the end of 2013, which is when the violence in Libya started to go uh, up and up and up. So the first point is, as uh, your president would say, don't do stupid things uh, on migrations. Uh, there is a disconnect, I think, from the way uh, the European plans have been portrayed by the press and the actual European plans. Uh, if you look at the uh, EU summit conclusions on Monday, nowhere it says that they will bomb uh, the votes, but of course the headline has always been bomb the votes. Uh, nevertheless, I think that the crucial factor which will be decided in New York at the Security Council is whether uh, the European mission is allowed to conduct onshore operations and what kind of onshore operations it's going to be uh, allowed to conduct. Because uh, I don't see how the smugglers business model, which is the language that's been used, can be disconnected from the Libyan civil war. So if you want to address the, uh, the business model of the smugglers, you will be involved in the Libyan civil war. And you will, be, uh, you will need to be careful what kind of Libyan interlocutors you want to engage with, if any. This leads me to the second point, which I think uh, Abdurrahman uh, picked up very well, which is the opportunity given by some local ceasefires which have been brokered. Now we know that in Libya those are usually short-lived and that's where the West must step in, in providing guarantees and making those local ceasefires not the alternative to the national ceasefire but something that lays the ground uh, for, for the national uh, ceasefire. And this implies a lot more talk uh, with local councils. You know that one of the tracks uh, of the UN dialogue is the one with municipalities. That's been managed mostly uh, by the European Union. And that expertise, those contacts, should be used with point one on migrations. Uh, we should engage with local communities in Libya and work together with them instead of antagonizing them with the idea that we go in and we solve the problem. The third element, I think, is the dialogue with the Gulf countries. Uh, as I said, we are in a context in which power sharing is not very popular at the moment in the West. I think uh, the US administration in last week's summit made this point that power sharing is needed uh, in Libya as elsewhere in the region. There will be an opportunity for Europeans to make the same point uh, next week in Doha with the EU GCC summit. Uh, and I think it's important that the Gulf countries receive exactly the same message uh, from the US and from Europeans. A fourth element is what do we do with Libya's financial institutions? As Abdurrahman said, uh, there is an impending economic crisis of which most Libyan actors are not fully aware. There is this awareness that we can go on like this for three or four years and it's fine. We have enough reserves to go on like this. It's not true, of course. Uh, and if you look at the European internal documents, it says 10 months, maybe, at current level. Uh, which sets a clear timeline on why we have to take uh, some measures. This is where I think the national unity government can really do something. 
I'm not sure the national unity government will take charge of security. Uh, I don't see that happening. I see that happening more uh, through the local agreements. But I do think you need a, a national unity government in order to do to implement those economic reforms that are needed in order to avoid total economic collapse, which in turn would cause full escalation of the civil war. This may sound a little bit cynical, but I think there is a difference as of now between the Libyan civil war and the Syrian civil war in the number of casualties. And I'm afraid we may look at this year in terms of casualties in Libya as a happy year, as we look at 2011 in Syria as a happy year as compared to the other years. Uh, and this could happen especially if we have a total collapse of uh, the government structures in Libya, and especially total collapse of the payment of uh, government salaries in Libya, which in turn would fuel uh, the war economy and make uh, reversing the war a lot more uh, difficult. So I think the efforts put in place by the West on preserving the independence of the financial institutions are quite crucial because that's a single element that has avoided so far the full escalation because parties are receiving weapons but they're not controlling uh, the money. And this leads me to the last point. Uh, today I was just reading the headlines of a, a, a newspaper uh, here in the US and it, there was the word accountability and Benghazi. So I said, wow, that's impressive. Because uh, my idea of accountability and Benghazi is that there are human rights violations uh, in Benghazi and that someone should take care of that. That's one of the containment measures that we should uh, start implementing uh, while we wait for, for the uh, political solution. But unfortunately, the link between accountability and Benghazi was a much more uh, US domestic policy uh, connection, which I won't go <laughs> into the details. But it seems sometimes that the clock has stopped in 2012 uh, when, you, when you read the debate from, from Europe. But this is a crucial element. Uh, we have a, a, a UN mandate for the International Criminal Court. And if you look at the funding of the International Criminal Court for Libya is ridiculous. Uh, if you look at the uh, willingness and the cap capacity of the International Criminal Court to conduct investigations in Libya, that's also uh, not, not a serious one. Finally, uh, one question I get asked in European capitals even in northern European capitals is, how do we get the US attention on Libya? Because the perception is that there is little attention here uh, to Libya, which is not even in the European neighborhood, it's in the European front yard. Uh, Libya is just 200 miles uh, from Europe. Uh, and as the migrants have demonstrated, you can use uh, very uh, uncomfortable boats to travel from Libya. Uh, to Europe, and that means also extremists could do the same. I think that question is a little bit unfair. There is more that has been done by uh, American foreign policy in Libya that meets the eye. I think there was a crucial effort on the preservation of the independence of the financial institutions, which had a profound effect on uh, keeping the level of violence low, as I was saying before. But of course, more needs to be done, and I think the crucial element is how do we work on the local ceasefires, so how do we work on the very micro-local level, and how do we work on the regional level in order to uh, de-escalate the regional confrontation of which Libya has been the victim, especially in the past year. And I will leave it there. Thank you very much, Matthias. Thanks a lot to both of you. Um, Yes, you both have sketched a picture that sees two different levels, which is not the level where Bernardino Leon and the United Nations are working. They're working on the national unity government at the national level, while, while, while you both think that 
the, the most effective action should be taken at the lower level of the, of the various local, local rivalries, local clashes, local councils, and then at the upper level, which is the regional one. My question is, it, this seems to me really a me, at least a medium term, if not a, long, uh, a much longer term uh, endeavors. While the crisis is looming and it's, it's actually it's, it is right, right now, do you, do you both really feel that this is a possibility that the international community can foster this kind of this kind of uh, this kind of agreement, this kind of dialogues, and this kind of actions in the short term and produce a, a result, or should we think about uh, some, 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 something even more difficult, such as going to new elections rapidly and and try and try try to really to create a clean slate and re-legitimize the the whole, the, whole, the, whole, the whole system. The, I think the practical ability of the international community to get involved at the micro, local level in terms of ceasefires is limited by the fact that most of the embassies and most of the members of the international community cannot actually operate inside Libya. They have to operate from neighboring countries, either Malta or Tunisia or elsewhere. So that it very much limits the international community's ability to keep their ears to the ground and get involved in these types of uh, negotiations, which is possibly a reason why they see that having a unity government which would be able to get involved at the local level is a far more productive exercise. However, I think that the warring actors themselves, as well as the social structures that represent people's interests and in different regions that means different things in um, in some areas it means tribes in some areas it means families in some areas it means armed groups that are kind of uh, deeply ingrained into their their local communities mm -hmm. if they were more involved as in terms of the UN-led negotiations right from the beginning um, then I think it would have been much more productive um, my point of view how practical it is or not, is that in fact the politicians in this scenario should be tracked too, um, and that they are much less relevant than the people who are actually fighting each other and who have grievances with each other that are, that are multiple and unique to every single area. Um, the, one of the reasons why some of these warring actors and tribes are actively rejecting uh, some of these UN-led negotiations is because they feel that they're excluded from it. I see the politicians on both sides, whether it's the GNC and the Salvation Government and the, the HOR and the Baylor Government as merely manifestations or capitalizing on the activities of the warring actors on both sides and their existence is purely based on the activities, but they have no direct command and control or hierarchical control over the armed groups or the warring actors on either side. However, they are benefiting from their activities because it means they can maintain political power. But when it's convenient, which is probably after the unity government is created, the people who they, these warring actors will then be labeled as militias and criminals and outside of the law and they must be demobilized and disarmed and excluded and everything else. And the, the warring actors and the militias, they see, this, um, they see this as a very distinct possibility. The practical possibility of national elections in October when the HOR's mandate ends if it's not extended um, is very difficult. I see in some areas of Libya, I see it as actually practically impossible to conduct effective elections 
uh, namely Benghazi, uh, places like Dirna and, uh, and other places. Um, and if it were possible, it would need the planning would need to begin from right now. It would take around maybe three to six months to effectively plan uh, the, some type of uh, elections. I do see a, a kind of possible containment in Benghazi, although it's much more difficult in the west of Libya, and the idea would be based on addressing the grievances, the core grievances of the warring actors, rather than focusing on the political ambitions of the individuals involved on either side. Both sides can agree uh, on certain principles. Both sides say they want Libya to be like Dubai, and they want a police and an army, and all these cliches. But they are suspicious of the individuals involved on either side. One side is suspicious of Haftar, and they've made preconditions that he can't be involved. And the other side is suspicious of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Islamists, and Badi, and Swahili, and all these different characters. So if we were to separate the ambitions of the individuals from the principles and the grievances that they're fighting over, and have some kind of independent truth process where grievances are at least addressed, um, uh, or at least made the information is made available, then it could go a long way towards having even local level negotiations between the warring actors in the east of Libya. Do you have anything to say? Yeah, I don't see acting on the local and on the regional level as a long-term solution. These are things that are happening now. Uh, and if you look at the recent history of Libya, if you miss the opportunity for a local ceasefire at one point, then the next opportunity may come a year down the line. So I think now it's the moment to seize that opportunity. Things at the regional level are taking place now. Uh, there was a summit in Cairo of the joint uh, Arab chief of staff. Uh, it's time to start the conversation there uh, and to start putting on the table a different strategy that addresses the problem of extremism, which does exist in the region, but with a different strategy that is not the uh, eradicationist strategy, which has failed and which has actually fueled, I think, radicalism. I think if you look at the rise of ISIS in, in Libya, it is also the result of two exclusionist uh, dynamics. One is the fear by many Islamists that they will be excluded, as it happened in Egypt. And the other one is the countervailing uh, fear by the rank and file of the former regime of being marginalized, as they have been uh, since 2011. So I think, I truly think that an inclusivist approach to this is the most realistic approach. It's not just about being nice, it's also about being uh, realistic. And it hasn't worked for so many years now in the whole region that it's time to reassess that and to, to start a conversation on that. Uh, I do see an, a national level, so I don't think uh, Leon was wrong in engaging with the national level. But as I said, I think if we are thinking that the national uh, unity government will address the security issue, we're deluding ourselves. I think the national unity deal would address the economic issues, and of course you need a national government in order to do that. You can't do that at the local level simply because 97% of uh, the, the revenues of the Libyan government are centralized because of the way the oil works. On the elections, I criticized with all the energies I had last year the idea to support the elections because uh, I think this idea that uh, counting ballots instead of bullets works, 10 years after Iraq, we should have a reassessment about that and understand that in many parts of the world, you first count ballots and then you start using bullets. And if you look at the level of violence in Libya, it escalated 
uh, after the elections. Of course, not because you had the elections, but because you had elections without building a favorable context around them so that uh, those who lost the elections would not feel excluded and those who won the elections would not feel empowered to exclude uh, anyone else. So that you need to have an inclusive context uh, behind the elections. And so the, the first takeaway is that, yes, elections, but what, what is the context around those elections? And then the second problem, I think it's a practical one. It's not just the security Abdurrahman was quoting, but it's also the role of the, the Libyan judiciary. We are talking about a country in which, in the whole East, there is not a single court working at the moment. How do you think you're going to have elections without court, courts functioning? It's elections, and we all know that, yes. both in Europe and here, are also about courts. It's not just about having the polling booths, because uh, you have appeals after elections. Uh, how are you going to manage that with a, a Supreme Court, which at the moment is not recognized uh, by one of the two sides. This doesn't mean we haven't, uh, we can't work on the elections, but I think it, we need to build the context uh, uh, around the elections, both at the regional and at the local level. Clear. Okay. Who wants to begin? Who wants to shoot the first question? Federica, could you just introduce yourself and then... Take another couple of questions and we answer them together. You first. Okay, you want to begin to answer this round? Matthias, you start first. Yes, uh, thank you very much for uh, very interesting questions. On, on, on what is the real outcome on this whole migration issue? Uh, I frankly don't know, uh, because this is the first time the EU is actually taking joint action on this issue. And uh, what I fear is that there is an effort to link this issue with the issue of terrorism 
There is lots of very creative reports coming up, uh, very often in the European media of uh, ISIS fighters hiding uh, among the, the migrants on the boats. My comment on that is that if I were an ISIS fighter, I would never take one of those boats because I, I want to reach Europe if I want to, have to, to, to make a terrorist attack, and that's not a safe way to reach Europe. Uh, especially because most of the attacks that have taken place in Europe recently have been conducted by European nationals who don't need to take a migrant boat to get to Europe. Uh, so I think it's quite unpredictable. Uh, I don't think they're going to get into the position where they can actually do what they've been talking about. I think the most likely outcome is that from all of this, they will just be able to change the rules of engagement so that when they're attacked, once they seize the smuggler's boat, they can respond on that. This has happened uh, recently a couple of times. But that doesn't really change the whole equation of migrations. And I think unless Europeans change their own regulations about migrations and create some legal channels of access to Europe, then there is going to be demand for smugglers. Uh, uh, there is this equation that we can use the same policy we used against piracy in Somalia against smugglers in the Mediterranean. Well, the news is there is no demand for piracy. There is demand for, for migrants' boats. And as long as a smuggler can earn 800,000 uh, euros, which is more than a million dollars for a single boat, you can destroy one, two, three boats at the, for the same smuggler, and it's still going to be a good deal for him. So that's why I don't think that's a, that's a, a good policy. Uh, what is the relevance of political parties? Probably Abdurrahman can answer better than me. Uh, I think for historical reason, there is a hostility by many Libyans to the very idea of political parties. And this has been one of the shortcomings of the current transition. Uh, you know, Political parties are one of the features of modern democracies. And I still have to think of uh, uh, an advanced democracy that doesn't have some kind of political organization that not only creates support for members of parliament, but also elaborates ideas and shares them with the public and uh, creates a public debate, which is really something that's been missing. Uh, on the attention of Europe, I do share your point of view, and you can, uh, uh, you can just figure my frustration in the past years, trying to get the attention of European policymakers on Libya and telling, showing them the map, where was Libya, where was Europe, and it was a big struggle. And unfortunately, only after Libya uh, was involved in a civil war, then European leaders started to pay some attention. And only after the word IS uh, came into the same headline as Libya, they started to be more uh, focused on Libya. And it's very unfortunate because uh, it's sad that uh, we paid attention to the 21 Egyptians killed, which was a terrible act but we didn't pay attention to the 3,000 Libyans who had been killed before that. And I think also in terms of messages we deliver on the other shore of the Mediterranean, that's a very uh, bad message. But there is a European plan to provide security to the national unity government. That's what Europeans have been discussing in the past months. Uh, and it seemed that little bit uh, unrealistic that they were discussing only on the day after uh, the agreement without discussing how to get to the agreement. But the idea is that a peacekeeping force would be formed and it would be sent to control some areas in Tripoli. I sincerely don't know whether that would be effective or whether that would be uh, a good idea. It depends a lot on the kind of agreement you have uh, in place. 
And just going on from that, some of the, the security cooperation that's been happening since 2011 is mostly based on capacity building. Um, in regards to illegal migration and border security, the EU had the EU border assistance mission for which our co committee was the, the official focal point. Most of these activities, including training activities and in all sectors, but uh, in particular the security and military sector, are more based on uh, maintaining and sustaining the, the goodwill uh, that exists between the international community and the Libyan government. Um, so I would say that they would always have more political value than technical value. And some of these strategies, were, most of the time, they would, these short-term strategies create long-term problems. The lack of ability of the Libyan government to analyze their own needs uh, means that um, the Libyan government mostly relies on international needs analysis. And international needs analysis in these type of sectors means speaking to Libyans within the government and asking them what they want. If you're asking somebody that doesn't know what he wants, what he wants, he's just going to say, train 8,000 people, give us radios, give us cars, um, give us arms, um, without actually uh, addressing some of the, the ingrained institutional and structural problems that exist within the military or security sector or otherwise, and that's what's going to happen with the unity government. Unless they, they take this, uh, this standard international best practice war on terror approach, they have a unity government, they decide who the common enemy is, and then they, they support them militarily or logistically to fight that common enemy. And I think that would be um, a non-productive mm -hmm. process and would result in the evolution of these common enemies into much more sophisticated and effective organizations that would disrupt the uh, political and security process. The relevance of... Um, Party politics, I mean, um, a lot of people are very critical about the contribution of a lot of these political parties um, in the last couple of years. At the end of the day, <clears throat> what political parties, I guess, are supposed to be are uh, places where people can meet and gain uh, as part of a political participation process. Um, in Libya, it's the same kind of thing. Um, it's, it's just a channel, what it's become as a, as a channel and a route for the political and economic empowerment of the uh, members of these parties. Um, because there is no kind of definition of a Libyan national interest, a Libyan national identity, uh, because there isn't a vision for what the new Libya post-Gaddafi is going to be, um, what we've basically seen, and also a lack of a clear mandate and a clear, uh, lack of a clear definition of what the exact authority and role of some of these legislative bodies and executive bodies is going to be. What we've seen is a struggle between individuals, we've seen struggles between factions um, over piece of the pie. What we have is a fixed pie belief system. The amount of the pie is fixed. There is no clear definition of, the, uh, of how uh, the individual Libyan citizen can gain um, economic and political empowerment, and therefore you have to uh, take what you can in an almost survive or zero-sum game type of mentality where all sides, uh, I wouldn't say both sides, but all sides uh, believe that the exclusion of who they deem to be uh, enemies would be the solution for Libya's problems. And if they continue with that uh, type of narrative, I don't see them as having a positive role um, in politics, but it's inevitable uh, because the, the political party law still stands and uh, they haven't decided that it's only going to be individuals who are going to be elected. Yeah, we should say that the electoral law never, never really helped the idea of political parties because we allow only 80, 80 even, the, even the old GNC, only 80 were, were, were elected under, under the political party platform and 120 were elected individuals. The electoral law itself and the, the system it does not in, in, enforce the creation of political parties. 
and does not foresee them, them working effectively as avenues of participation for the citizens into the, 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 into the government. But there's a continuous breakdown and fragmentation. The right wing, one and two. Okay, go Ali. First. I'm a conservative, but not right wing. Well, this is my right wing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have two uh, points uh, for the presenters. Thank you very much for uh, elaborate uh, presentations. Number one is this uh, United Nations uh, sponsored uh, dialogue or negotiations. What I have seen is that it was uh, really uh, not given the right support from the very beginning. Negotiations for four uh, sessions did not bring the two parties together on the same table, meaning it's like going to a movie, not really thinking of a country, of solving a crisis, and so on. And the United Nations has the ability for the carrot and the stick policy to do it. They have the sanctions. If you don't want to sit on the table, yeah, well, get out, and uh, somebody else will come. The question is that why they are not playing this role? This, it boggles me. If we are serious as an international community to help the Libyans come together, there are some means and ways to do that. But to leave it as if we are going to a picnic or to a movie, I don't think it, it, it will work. The next one, which is, uh, my, I'm, my city is Benghazi, and I'm elected from it. My city has been destroyed. It is crying for help, for medical help, for humanitarian help. You mean you tell me that the world powers cannot make a safe haven to help the people of Benghazi? Come on. This is not reality. We're talking about a, Kent, I mean a city of a million and a half almost. That is two-thirds two of the Srinaikan population. And being left this way for, uh, by the way, yesterday or the day before was the first, uh, passing of the first year of the so-called liberation of Benghazi. We call it the destruction of Benghazi. And why doesn't the world community at large, the United Nations, create some kind of a help, humanitarian help? That's enough. Chuck, you have another question? Uh, thank you. Chuck Dietrich with the U.S. Libya Business Association. I was wondering if you both or either of you could um, just comment on the um, current constitutional drafting process and where that fits into the dynamic that we discussed today. The constitutional drafting or lack thereof. Thank you, Doug. Let's begin with uh, Abdurrahman, you want to start? 
Okay. Um, yeah, the, the first point was regarding carrots and sticks for the dialogue. Um, I've heard from various participants in the dialogue that in the beginning there was a kind of carrots and sticks approach where there were threats uh, of sanctions made to the participants in the dialogue that if they were non-productive or they disrupted the dialogue in any way that they would be subject to uh, sanctions and other so, some kind of punitive measures and where that broke down was um, a lack of agreement in the international community particularly the Security Council about who are the individuals who should be involved and from that point on um, it became a mostly multilateral led uh, exercise a, a UN led exercise with the bilaterals particularly the US and the UK envoy taking uh, a step back so there was no kind of um, threats or punitive measures where the Libyan participants in this dialogue would take it seriously. Um, and some say that some people stopped turning up and they would only send representatives and they would be in separate rooms. Um, and it was a, a, a conversation which was largely disconnected from the people who were warring um, on the ground. Whether the international community can correct that now, uh, after so long, is something that uh, could be discussed from some of the members of the international community that I've spoken to here and in the UK and other places. There seems to be um, a lack of a clear idea or reluctance on exactly how they would create carrots and sticks and correct some of the incentives to some of these participants. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. <clears throat> on the constitution drafting process, I think Mattia could probably talk more about it, but it, from, from my point of view, I, I mean, it's becoming more and more um, irrelevant to the current conflict and the current process over time. My opinion is is that even if there was to be a constitution, if the constitution doesn't create a new social contract that corrects the implicit social contract created by Gaddafi before, which was an implicit relationship of dependency, a typical rentier state type model, um, then the constitution isn't really going to, it's just going to be... Um, something that people have very high expectations for and that are going to be very much uh, disappointed when it comes out. <clears throat> and that brings me on to the economic situation. Um, I mean, the, I guess the, the, the figures um, are available publicly with, from the IMF and the World Bank and some, some other um, international monitors about how much reserves are accessible, how much reserves are with the LIA, uh, what is the reserves that are available to the central bank and how long they would take to deplete at current spending levels um, and whether a change in current spending would be able to extend that time. Um, we're, we're obviously exporting less than 500,000 um, barrels per day at the moment. Um, the issue would be that if there is a collapse and if there is a depletion of our reserves, the main point would be to focus on what will the government still have the ability to pay salaries. Salaries and subsidies represent around 60% of the budget and that's risen on average 5 to 10% every year since 2011 with over 80% of the Libyan workforce being employed by the state in a type of rentier state welfare type model where there's no productivity being extracted from the citizen in return from him working. It's actually counterproductivity and destructiveness um, in most cases, if the state is no longer able to pay salaries, then one of two things could happen. Either Libyans will realize that they can't take the natural resources for granted and that they need to come together and create a vision. Um, what's more likely to happen will be um, an evolution of the conflict from more ceremonial warfare, which is what it is now in most places in Libya, into total warfare. Um, and when I say ceremonial warfare, what I'm, what I'm saying is that 
um, in most conflicts in Libya, they don't have the desire to completely eliminate and exterminate their, their enemies in the rival tribe or family or militia. Um, it's just a, um, a kind of a way to uh, a power projection to draw kind of territories and draw lines and limits um, and to express power. Um, but if it evolves into total warfare, then we'll see a completely different narrative. We could also have a conversation then if it was to be a complete economic collapse. I'm sure people will start talking more about federalism, more about the splitting up of Libya. That conversation could happen. It's not a realistic conversation to have at this point in time, but that's how important a potential economic collapse is. And what Libyans have to realize is that it could come much sooner than they think. And the only, the only thing that even the unity government, even if it does um, create some kind of changes in public spending, um, a reduction in subsidies or the elimination of subsidies, subsidies the, re the reduction of the uh, number of salaries paid using a national ID system, it will only ex extend the time that we have for collapse. It won't eliminate the chance of collapse. Best case scenario, we'll go back to how it was in 2013. We were already on a downward sloping towards collapse anyway. On the, on the issue of, of sanctions, uh, if you read UN Security Council Resolution 2174, it lists a number of reasons for which individual sanctions can be implemented. And one of them is to be an obstacle in the dialogue process. I don't think that's a particularly effective uh, carrot and stick. Uh, first of all, it's very vague. How do you determine whether someone is hindering the dialogue process? Uh, and secondly, once you give someone individual sanctions, then they're not going to be very, very cooperative uh, on, on the dialogue process. But I do think that the other reasons to issue individual sanctions in that resolution should be taken seriously. Violations of human rights, violations of international law. Uh, there's been a big passion in Libya for bombing airports in the last year. That's against international law. And bombing has been done mostly uh, with the Air Force. So it's not very hard to determine where a fighter jet takes off and where it drops the bombs. We have the intelligence uh, facilities to determine that. We should start using those, uh, those provisions. Secondly, uh, we know that sanctions have not been issued because of a contentious issue, or, or actually a contentious name, Khalifa Haftar. Not everyone is in agreement in the West about whether to include uh, Khalifa Haftar in the, in the sanctions uh, list. And of course, whether you include him or not, that changes a lot the impact those sanctions have uh, in Libya. Speaking of UN resolutions, uh, there has been a tightening up of the arms embargo, which has been in place now for some time in Libya. Uh, but then if you read the uh, UN Panel of Experts report, you, you read all the names of the countries that have provided weapons to Libya. There is even a picture of uh, an helicopter used by one of the Libyan factions and a helicopter uh, used by uh, an Arab country, and they look strikingly similar. Uh, they just uh, changed the, the numbers. Uh, on one helicopter, they were in Arabic numbers. On the other one, they were in... Uh, European Western numbers. Incidentally, uh, some of these countries that are providing weapons to continue the, the Libyan civil war are Western allies. So I know it's unrealistic to say that that arms flow should stop, but at least starting to ask the question in public 
what is your commitment to the dialogue process if you are providing weapons? Uh, and also, why are all these weapons Russian-sounding names? Uh, what kind of relationships are you establishing? Uh, secondly, on Benghazi, I'm always wary of humanitarian safe events because of the experience of Srebrenica in the 1990s, how strongly we can guarantee that. But again, on the issue of accountability and international law, hindering the delivery of humanitarian aid is against international law. That's a clear case uh, for uh, sanctions and for ICC uh, prosecution. Have we done that? I don't think so. The European Union has uh, committed a number of uh, funds for the delivery of humanitarian aid. They have been un mostly unable to deliver that because the factions have not accepted uh, or have not cooperated in that. Again, that's against international law. On the CDA process, uh, I always find a little bit funny uh, when I hear in London people saying that the Constitution is the, the solution to all problems in a country that last time I checked it does not have a Constitution. Uh, and I think, again, that the experience in the rest of the region has shown that the Constitution is really sometimes not at the end of all problems, but just the the beginning of other problems, uh, especially in a situation where you have a body that's been elected in a very complex security situation that has been working in a very complex security situation and because of that has not been able to carry out the kind of consultation it wanted to, to carry out. I think that rather than thinking that the Constitution is the solution to all problems, that we should work more, as Abdurrahman was saying, on the truth and reconciliation issue. That, I think, the idea of having independent investigations, uh, as Abdurrahman was suggesting, is crucial to solving some of the local problems. Because many of those local conflicts come from grievances which sometimes date back to the mid-1990s. Uh, and uh, promoting accountability investigations should be crucial. Uh, finally, on the economic situation, at the current level, uh, without implementing any reforms. In 2015, uh, the Libya will burn about one-third of its remaining reserves, so about $25 million, uh, billion dollars uh, out of uh, $75, $80 billion remaining of liquid reserves. That doesn't mean they have three years, as most Libyan actors think, because, of course, once you get close to zero, a number of measures start to be implemented. Uh, and that sends a clear signal also to the Libyan population. Hey, the peace economy is over. We have start, we, we must start to get involved into the war economy. And according to, to, to what I'm hearing, this is already <coughs> happening. That for instance, smugglers have uh, more availability of properties that can be used to store migrants because, before boarding them on boats because more families are keen to rent those properties because they know that government salaries are going to stop sooner rather than later. So the more we get closer to zero, that kind of signals are going to increase, and that's going to fuel even more uh, the civil war. Uh, so I think it, it's crucial to address that, that issue, but also to convey the sense of urgency uh, <coughs> on that side uh, to the different parties who really have the idea that they can <coughs> drag on that process. Thank you, Matthew. We have time for another round. Yes.
thank you. Is uh, another one? Yes. Um, quick question, Sharon Bobat, Voice of a Moderate. In reference to the European and also with the ISIS, I, I remember hearing, I think at the Atlantic Council, that about $20 million was pledged in the EU to educate people about Islamic extremism. Now, that seemed like a low number for the whole EU. I talked to somebody at the French Embassy, and it seems like some countries are more interested in getting a long-term solution because war seems to be part of the culture of a lot of the countries. And I would just like your opinion of the EU in general. Are they working together, or is it different states have different priorities? Thank you, sir. Thank you. We can take another one, or we just go, yes, over there. So, um, I guess the first question was about IS and Al-Qaeda and Ansar al-Sharia and how they're linked and how many of them have regional objectives, how many of them have local objectives. Um, I guess when you look at the, the nature of the organizations um, and the individuals involved, there have been some significant defections um, from um, Ansar al-Sharia and Al-Qaeda to um, to IS. However, the debate about the issue of um, bay'ah to Baghdadi over Mullah Omar is still a prevalent discussion within Islamist circles and it hasn't been settled yet. Um, although there is information that Abu Hammam in, uh, in Nuflia has now become affiliated with IS uh, after previously being affiliated with Al-Qaeda, which is a significant step. You have obviously Abu Abdullah who defected uh, a few months ago, who was a, a significant jurist within Ansar al-Sharia. Um, the, the common narrative and the common enemy is still very much Haftar. So from the Libyan Islamist point of view, the objective isn't necessarily to go into Tunisia and to create uh, the uh, Islamic State in North Africa. They have local grievances, local ideas, and, and, and a local agenda. And then you have the, the IS, um, which is more linked to headquarters. So you have about three or four guys, Abu Nabil and those guys, who have a direct link with uh, Baghdadi and who have a direct link with Raqqa and Mosul, and they do have regional objectives. And the, the, way I, the, way, the best way to uh, deal with these organizations, which is not being done now, is to look at the organization as, let's say, 100%, where you have 90, over 95% of those people are brainwashed uh, youth who have joined it for reasons of exclusion and marginalization and unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have less than 5% of these organizations are individuals who have either 
regional ideological or logistical links with other organizations and who are insistent upon an agenda and that agenda sometimes is not clear. Um, if you tackle 100% of the organization with uh, security and military measures, um, what ends up happening is that the organization entrenches, the recruitment increases, um, the, the relationship in the organization with HQ increases, and then you start to see more and more uh, Mujahideen being sent from Tunisia and Sudan and Algeria and all these different places coming into Libya, which is only happening in very small numbers now. If you notice that the majority of the people who are conducting operations on the ground um, are actually uh, non-Libyan at this point in time. And what I don't want to see is, uh, which could happen according to the nature of the response and who's fighting them, um, is an evolution towards more um, a Libyan uh, evolution uh, and a Libyan ability to conduct. Uh, operations effectively and disrupt the process. Um, some of the, the Al-Qaeda organizations, uh, particularly in the southwest, uh, um, the way I'd probably compare them is, is organizations where the, the economic objective was at the heart rather than the, the operational political objective. So the fact that they had, to be, they had to be ingrained and gain the trust and sustain relationships with the local tribes uh, in the southwest and the southeast of Libya in order to maintain smuggling routes was a significant source of income. And they didn't really have an incentive to disrupt that. And um, the change, uh, a big change came last year after the expansion of French military operations from the north of Mali into the north of Niger and the north of Chad, which meant that the south of Libya became a much less comfortable place for some of these groups to operate effectively which also led to more prevalence on the coast. So the movement of activities towards the north of Libya. And um, I, when speaking with the French uh, last year before they did it, I told them the Libyan government, at that time there was one Libyan government, but I told them that the Libyan government wouldn't be able to deal with that and it would have consequences that would be felt, uh, would inevitably result in some kind of re, uh, military intervention of some sort. Um, and um, Sharon, um, mentioned obviously the, the um, Western local dynamics. Um, I mentioned it briefly in the beginning and um, the dynamics in the West of Libya are far more positive in terms of, I'm far more optimistic about a solution um, at the local level in the West of Libya than I, and the South of Libya much more than I am about the East. Now the East of Libya is very much possible but the West of Libya is much more possible in the, sh in the immediate short term. Now the, the Masrata um, announcement is, you know, it's, it's, if you understand the dynamics within Musrata, then it's, it's kind of a fairly um, obvious kind of thing because although Musrata has been perceived to be um, Islamist dominated and Muslim Brotherhood dominated, the majority of the factions and the most powerful armed groups are actually anti-Islamist um, in their nature. Um, the armed groups that took part in this, uh, in this briefing, which is about 40 armed groups, including some of the bigots, which was Halbos and Liwal Mahjoub, and these are the brigades who were involved in Zawiya, in the negotiations with, between Zawiya and Mushafana, um, with Halbos being there in the middle. Um, and yeah, they are saying they, that they're against the political isolation law. They are saying that uh, we're against uh, terrorists, um, all of these positive things. And I think that follows on from some of, the, some of their regional activities, including sending delegations to the UAE um, and other places. Um, much to the dismay, th there are factions within Masrata that are Islamist. And the way I would define it from a conceptual point of view is to look at it in terms of what is the alliance of convenience between 
Islamists and revolutionaries. And when I say Islamists and revolutions, I mean hardline revolutionary narrative and political Islamist narrative. Um, and where both of them meet in the middle is the fact that they both believe in the creation of parallel institutions over the reform of the previous institutions. And they both um, did believe in the exclusion of Gaddafi loyalists. You know, um, and that's where the alliance of convenience ends. And what inevitably happens when either of the groups gain power or both of the groups gain power, as in 2011, is that the splits and the fragmentation starts to increase between the groups as they, they start to um, rub elbows too much. So what the briefing says yesterday is that Misrata needs the expertise of former Gaddafi loyalists from the security and military apparatus in order to effectively combat uh, terrorists. So it, it is... It is extremely significant and extremely positive, but these factions have always been saying this um, for, for a number of years. It's just now they've become more and more under pressure to, to make that uh, public. Uh, on, the, on the Western role in Libya, uh, and I don't want to expand on Benghazi 2012, uh, but I do think that we should be less Western-centric, that Libya was not screwed up by the West. Uh, this is a very Orientalist view, that we come into a Middle Eastern country and we screw it up. First of all, Libya was screwed up by its dictatorship, uh, that we are now witnessing the legacy of 42 years of Gaddafi. Let's not forget that many of the jihadis that we see around were freed by Gaddafi between 2009 in 2011. So let's bear this in mind when we support autocrats in the region even today, that dictators may seem to provide stability in the short term, but in the long term we pay the price of that support. Uh, I think Libya was screwed up for several reasons. One of them was the legacy of the old regime. The other one was crucial mistakes committed by uh, the post-Gaddafi leadership. And then there was the regional context. Uh, violence in Libya was always high after 2011 but it peaked after uh, the coup in Egypt uh, because of a number of reactions and counter-reactions that took place. And if you want to understand what happens in Libya, you always have to look at what happens in Egypt. That's the, the lesson of history, at least in the past century. So I wouldn't overemphasize the, the, the Western role. On the terrorist groups, uh, to add to what Abdurrahman was saying, uh, I think the Islamic State so-called Islamic State has a great potential in Libya, but we shouldn't be manipulated by local actors on this issue. Uh, and we shouldn't fall into the war on terror trap in which whoever screams terrorist, terrorist in, in the Middle East gets our attention. And in fact, usually screams terrorist, terrorist just to indicate his domestic enemies. I think IS has a great potential because there is a civil war in Libya, it's not by incident that IS uh, came to Libya after the beginning of the civil war, not before. Uh, I think it has a great potential because there are existing uh, jihadist groups from which we're seeing defections in the past few months uh, because there is a disenfranchised uh, rank and file community of the former regime which has not found a place in the new Libya. So we should be concerned about IS in Libya. Uh, that's my bottom line. And we should be concerned with the procrastination of a civil war in Libya, because as we have seen in Syria, the more civil war you have, the more fragmentation of armed groups you have, the more terrorism you're going to witness. 
So when we hear someone saying, you have to help me fight the civil war more in order to fight IS, we should tell them that we know this story. We have heard this before and it doesn't work. That actually the solution is to end or at least de-escalate the civil war in order to create the conditions uh, to fight IS. <coughs> uh, finally, are you uh, member states working together? Well, that's an easy answer. It's always very complicated. You have 28 member states with different priorities. Uh, for about half of those 28, the priority is not really the Mediterranean. The priority is Russia, big pressuring on them. Uh, if you read the European press, almost on a daily basis, you have reports of the, the Russian Air Force uh, going into the airspace of single European countries, particularly non-NATO European member states, which is, of course is creating other dynamics. So the first problem within the EU is having the same priorities, which is not the case at the moment. But we have seen surprisingly united responses. If you look at the uh, EU conclusions, not last week, but the ones issued in February uh, on the Libyan crisis, you see the contours of uh, a comprehensive plan about Libya, which if implemented would bring us uh, uh, much forward than we are today. Uh, there is an emphasis on uh, accountability and human rights. There is an emphasis on preserving the international institutions. Uh, there is readiness to deploy peacekeeping troops. So it's all, it's all there. Uh, I, I think on Libya we're seeing less divisions than we have seen, for instance, on Syria. Uh, so I, I'm not pessimistic about that. Thank you. I think we've reached the end of the time allocated for our event. And please, uh, is there any concluding remarks you want to make of the Rahman? Or, uh, just um, yeah, maybe one, yeah. one quick thing. I think the, although it's perceived as long term, I see that um, the final stage I was talking about after the truth and reconciliation phase, which is a vision for post-Gaddafi Libya, is something where obviously the Libyans are responsible for form, formulating and particularly the Libyan political leadership and this, is, this would be really the essential um, short, medium and long term. Without, without this long term vision, any short and medium term steps will be random in their nature and could be contradictory to um, a long-term vision. That long-term vision is really about a new social contract. It's about defining the Libyan national identity and the Libyan national interest in a tangible way and defining a clear path for economic and political empowerment for the individual Libyan citizen. And in summary, without going into too much, it's all about the oil that's in a rentier state. Economic empowerment is basically your relationship with the oil. Are you a dependent or are you an owner? Gaddafi uh, and several Arab monarchies ever since the Umayyad dynasty. The rulers have always been the owners. They have the choice of either being benevolent or, or cruel dictators, and that choice shouldn't really be made available to them in any way. The people should be the owners of economic and political empowerment. So a vision, if the vision is not formed, whether there's unity government before Ramadan or not, will be in this continuous random cycle of conflict and peace and then negotiations for many years to come. I, I've started with a pessimistic note, so let me conclude on an optimistic one. Uh, I think the good news is that Libya is not about Iran. So the kind of divisions we see between regional powers and the West and within the West about Iran and anything that emanates or relates to Iran uh, could be filled, those gaps on Libya. Uh, and I think it's every, in, in everyone's interest uh, to stabilize and pacify Libya. Uh, it's also in the interest of 
the Gulf countries, because if Libya collapses, uh, someone will have to foot the bill of those $30 billion annually on Libya. And that seems like a big figure if compared to the checks that have been uh, signed uh, for Egypt. And of course, Libya is not as important as Egypt is for some countries. So I do think that these elements can be conducive to a positive Western, uh, Western powers, Gulf powers dialogue, which I don't see as a confrontational dialogue, but it needs to be a honest dialogue uh, on a discussion on how to stabilize Libya rather than fighting uh, the regional war also in Libya. And I'm not sure this has emerged enough uh, in past conversations. Thank you very much. And please join me in thanking our guests uh, and speakers for their interesting remarks. And uh, please, we, are, we have been told to announce that we are also trying to be more cognizant about the recycling here. So please take care of the, notice the, 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 the blue beans outside. Yeah. Administrative work. Thank, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much.